G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. So what we have to do as investors is realize inflation is here. It is going to be happening for the next few years. There is no other way around it. There's no use to bitch and moan. So what we have to do is position ourselves in assets and investments that will positively benefit from this. Now, real estate is one obvious hedge against inflation, right? Because you, it's a real asset, so your value keeps, it just gets, keeps getting valued upwards in real terms. But you as an operator also know that we can basically take up rents because our leases are say 10 months, 12 months. So every 10 or 12 months, we can jack up our rents to accommodate the increase in inflation. So that way we can manage that side of the book. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of chatting with a very good friend of mine, Omar Khan. Now, Omar is the founder of Boardwalk Wealth, a multifamily investment firm here in the United States. And Omar is also a CFA, I should say, and has over 10 years experience investing across real estate, commodities, and has an M&A background advising on over $3.7 billion of transactions in his former life before jumping into the syndication world. Omar is a self-proclaimed global citizen like myself, and he's lived in Dubai, Toronto, Canada. 
Calgary and Dallas. And for all of those who have listened to this show for many, many years, you would know that Omar has been on this show before. I encourage you to go back and listen to that earlier episode way back in the day. But I'm really pumped to have him on the show today. So enough of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Omar. Welcome to the show. How are you today, mate? Hey, Reid. What's going on? Finally, we get to talk. I mean, we talk and text all the time, but on a podcast. <laughs> we get to what's talk on, on a podcast. Yeah, I know. It's really good, my friend. And you just closed on a, a new deal in Gainesville, Florida? Yeah. No, Gainesville, Georgia. Gainesville, I closed on the Georgia. deal, but I think I've reduced my life expectancy by at least like 5% uh, <laughs> just in that process. The Man, it ain't easy, Colin. You know, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. That's right. Know? That's right. And and we and we'll get into we'll get into that in a little bit. But for those of you who don't know who you are, can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? And then we'll get into your story about what you built to this this point. Okay. So I think, I mean, because I don't remember every single detail, I think the first dollar I made was I used to play keyboards when I was young. I mean, I honestly, I don't have any musical talents. I don't know. Maybe I had it for like the five-year window in my life. Right. And I love the synthesizer. I love music. I love 80s music. Right. So I used to play and then I gave some music lessons uh, for a couple of months. And that's how I made my first um, dollar. I am still surprised somebody, anyone took music lessons from me, but hey, <laughs> Got a dollar. That's not too bad. <laughs> and that's awesome, man. And you have a global background. So, so, so where you're from, where you're born, where you're brought up in, and what brought you to the States? So I was born in Dubai. I grew up in Pakistan. I went to school to Canada for a few years. I thought I was going to go back to either Pakistan or Dubai. But that time, you know, I just stuck around. I had a girlfriend at the time. Not with her anymore, thankfully. Uh, you know, got a job. Uh, did that for a few years in Toronto. One of my bosses poached me to go to Calgary because this was in the height of the oil boom, right? So we it was fantastic. I mean, you would think like everybody was walking on water. I mean, not without realizing it wasn't us. It was basically the oil market, right? So that was a really fun few years. Learned a lot, met a lot of interesting people. And then I met my wife. She is a physician or she is still a physician, but she was in residency training in the US. And it was a toss up, you know, when we got engaged, we started talking well, you know, whether she comes up to Canada, I moved down. And for her to move up to Canada, Canada's very bureaucratic, right? So for her to move up, she'd have to pretty much do everything. And she was in the last year of her residency. So this means she was done with medical school. She was done with her training, pretty much the last year of her training. And for her to get go to Canada, she'd have to start pretty much from scratch again, which is I was never going to put anybody through that type of mental torture, <laughs> right? So and for me, being a finance guy, it was relatively simpler to move down because you don't really need a license. You just need good networking and all of those sorts of abilities. So we just packed our bags. I lived in upstate New York for a few months. Do not recommend it to anybody at all. Uh, and Where, then whereabouts? I moved, <sighs> Syracuse, man. Yeah, I that's have, right. Uh, PTSD from living in Syracuse, <laughs> right? And uh, then I moved to Dallas. And, you know, we, that's how we started. We, you know, we started doing the typical finance stuff. We had a tax problem we wanted to solve. I had a good personal and professional background running deals, all of that sort of stuff. Did our first deal, did, you know, partnered with you as well on a couple of deals, did a couple of those, and then just, you know, one foot after the other, right? You do one deal, then you do another one, you do a couple of developments, acquisitions, and a few years later, you're on the podcast with Reed Goose again. <laughs> well, mate, I've been observing your growth for some time now, and um Maybe just give us a summary of what you've been involved with, because I know personally what you've been involved with, but maybe for the listeners, you, you, not just the, the run-of-the-mill multifamily, you've got some other things going on, uh, other, other sort of prongs in the fire, so to speak. 
Look, so, uh, I mean, I, my family, I'll give you a background. My family is a business family, right? So we've always owned a lot of commercial real estate. It's only when I started actually doing a lot of real estate deals did I realize that the traditional path is, you know, you do houses or whatever, townhomes or whatever, and then you kind of go up. And maybe like my dad or my grandfather did that, right, back in the day. But by the time I was around, we had uh, actual commercial real estate that was either, it wasn't a running company, it was more investments and holdings and that sort of stuff, right? So for me, I was never really down to the, hey, get houses and kind of go down that path because it just wasn't really something I was either used to or exposed to or didn't want to do. Uh, so I always saw real estate as a means to an end right? Hey, it's a great business. You meet so many great people, but it's like any other business and you've got to treat it like a business, right? So real estate was one thing, but coming from the finance investment banking world, I was exposed to a lot of other businesses. And then just through my network, family, friends, otherwise, you know, when you belong, when you say you're an entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of your friends now are entrepreneurs and they're doing lots of different things. So once you're in that environment, you start getting exposed to a lot of people, whether your family is an entrepreneur. So I just knew a lot of people with different businesses and you know they were very well-to-do people. So for instance, I started looking at other businesses. Hey, my real estate business development and acquisitions is going really well. What other businesses am I looking at, which are good, sustainable, long-term cash generating businesses? So now we're in the QSR space. We're going to launch. We QSR is a politically correct word of saying fast food restaurants, mm -hmm. right? So quick service restaurants. So we have uh, the rights in uh, Florida for a health food chain and we're opening uh, locations there. Because, But again, the reason why I could do that is because it's a very operationally intensive business. One of my really big investors happened to be the CEO of one of the biggest private equity backed franchise owned chains in uh, the Southeast. So, you know, once he came on board, he started investing with us. You know, you meet people, I just started talking to him, uh, learned what he was doing. I had done a lot of research coincidentally in the QSR space because about a decade or about 12 years ago, uh, Tim Hortons, which is the Canadian Dunkin' Donuts, it's a national institution. You probably know about I Tim know, Hortons, right? I do, yep. Right? Tim Hortons got acquired by Restaurant Brands International, which is a global private equity firm, right? It's run by a couple of Brazilian guys. Jorge Paulo Lima is like the head honcho there. And they had acquired a Canadian national jewel. Now in Canada, it's a pretty big deal, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the US, nobody really cares, right? And it was a big uproar in Canada. How could a foreigner buy this? Blah, 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 blah. And I got curious. So I started, because I was an equity analyst, I started going through the company's financials and started seeing, okay, how do you operate it? Because Timmy's is pretty much on every corner in Canada. Right. Pretty much. You cannot throw a stone and not hit a Timmy's. It's mm -hmm. that sort of deal, mm -hmm. right? And there's always a line outside the door. So I realized, analyzing that business, wow, it's operationally intensive, but holy moly, these cash margins are crazy. I mean, once you nail it, this is like a money printing machine, essentially, right? So I kept that at the back of my head. I met Thaddeus, who was the CEO of this private equity back firm. He was on the way out. And him and I started talking. We started, and you know, that business relationship blossomed. And now we're doing all of this stuff. That's awesome. In a nutshell. That's awesome. Yeah. When, when, can, when can investors find out about that? So you can go to our website, uh, boardwalkwealth.com. Right on the front page, there's an email opt-in, name, email, and uh, guess how you found out about us. <laughs> Click on the button. I don't even know what it says. You'll be sent an email. You verify that. Uh, and I'll know when you're on my mailing list or you can email me, Umar at Boardwalk Wealth. But the bigger point there was, you know, you as you and I were discussing, I was looking for a true diversification business out, outside of real estate, right? Uh, real estate is a very capital intensive business, right? You have to have a real estate, you got to put money in it, right? 
And I wanted as a secondary business, like a complement to my real estate business, a business that wasn't capital intensive, but operationally intensive, brain power intensive, mm -hmm. right? So, because for me, that was true diversification because if I have to keep throwing money at something to solve a problem, that's not a good long-term scalable business, right? Yes, yes. So that's why I looked around for a lot of times, found the right team, because it's very important to have a right team of experienced people who knows everyone, and then we went all in, basically. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to finding out more about that because I know I'll personally be investing in that coming up here soon. But, mate, let's pivot to the the, the genesis of today's show. Uh, you and I spoke a little bit offline you, you have a lot of curious thoughts in and around inflation, in and around capital raises, in and around how to pay zero taxes. So today's show is going to be all about really all, th all three of those topics. So maybe let's start with inflation and interest rates and implications for 2022 and beyond and where you think we're headed, uh, given your background in the financing markets, M&A, and what you're seeing across the globe. Well, you don't need to be super intelligent, Reid, to know inflation is happening. Right, it's real, it's happening. But I think a lot of people, in my opinion, get really hung up on, oh, it's happening, the world is ending, and then they stop, right? And you're like, look, we, unfortunately, I mean, we don't have the ability to, most of us at least, don't have the ability to do anything about it. So what we can do is proactively plan or at least react in some shape or capacity to position our portfolio to take advantage of it because that's the only thing in our control. Like worrying about inflation isn't gonna help you because there is no way around it. So inflation, unless they basically, the Fed actually follows through on what they say is, they violently raise, and violently, I'm very carefully using that word, they violently raise the rate of interest, right? Way above what they've guided, and then they just stick to it, right? Because they tried raising the rate of interest a few years ago, the whole market went into a meltdown, and then they just kind of backtrack, right? They go, oh, no, 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 we didn't really wanna do that, right? So now it all depends how much basically, for the lack of a better word, grit do these people have? And that's basically the game you're playing right now as an investor. Like does the central bank have enough of a political and other backing to withstand this? And in a polarized, marginalized world like we have right now, the fact of the matter is, even if a central banker wants to do something, right, like the right thing, quote unquote, whatever that means, they might not have the political backing to do it. Right. because the political will to do it might not exist. So what we have to do as investors is realize invest inflation is here. It is going to be happening for the next few years. There is no other way around it. There's no use to bitch and moan. So what we have to do is position ourselves in assets and investments that will positively benefit from this. Now, real estate is one obvious hedge against inflation, right? Because you, it's a real asset, so your value keeps, it just gets, keeps getting valued upwards in real terms. But you as an operator also know that we can basically take up rents because our leases are say 10 months, 12 months. So every 10 or 12 months, we can jack up our rents to accommodate the increase in inflation. So that way we can manage that side of the book. But that's not the only game, right? The other game is to actually be looking at basically investments right now that can give you say 10, 12% cash on cash on a very, uh, on a sustainable basis, not say a sponsor saying they're going to give you 10, 12, they come every three or four at the end of the year, right? And there you kind of have to be in operating businesses because only in operating businesses where you're not encumbered by many fixed costs, right? Your fixed costs don't drag you down. Do you have the flexibility? Because look, think about it this way. If you have to spend $100, right? And 80 of that is fixed costs. Well, regardless of which way the market goes, you're SOL, basically, because you've got to pay 80 every month. 
right? But if you're going to pay $100, but you 80% of that is your variable cost, so you can adjust to the way the market is going, that puts you at a competitive advantage. Because a lot of times you can devote more resources knowing that every dollar I spend here is going to give me a multiplicative effect. Yeah. Right. So you have to be by design in businesses apart from real estate that are operating businesses that have a low fixed cost ratio. That's just the way it is. You have to be nimble. And that's why, for instance, when I was talking about the QSR business, that is a business where we were not going to own the underlying real estate. You lease it and the lease terms are set five years and 10 years. Right. So the annual rent escalators, and you're going to laugh at this, are two percent a year. I mean, dude, we are raising our rents on our properties by like 15, 20, 30% at times. Yep. So this retail guy is going to give me, leaves me something. And all he's going to get is a measly 2% a year. I mean, I'll take that trade all day, every day, right? So that's basically it. I think a lot of people get very, especially in America, because uh, Americans have had, by the grace of God, such a good run. I mean, it is the apex country, mm-hmm. right? that people aren't used to a lot of gyrations happening at such a quick pace, right? And when they start happening, people freeze and they don't take any actions. And when you talk about gyrations, you're talking about this, everything's costing more, rent's costing more, petrol's yeah. costing more, groceries are costing more. You mean, That's what you mean by gyrations. And I like how you still say petrol, by the way. <laughs> gas, yeah, yeah, gas. <laughs> exactly. I say petrol as well, by the way. Um, no, but, but so how much of your portfolio and what you're seeing with your investors is in an operating business like a QSR or versus very versus real estate? Very, very, very less. Because the reason is the barriers to entry into getting into operating businesses through private equity, right? To take away real estate is very high because traditionally it's been reserved for institutions, say, or people who would swing like a $5 million check. Yep. Either that or say your brother-in-law's opening something and he asks you for $50,000. But sure, there's nothing in the middle. Right. Mm. Say you're a rich doctor, uh, you're a business owner, accountant, you got a hundred thousand dollar check. It's either real estate because, you know, that's a big business or the stock market. And the in-between part is it's an accessibility issue. And that's not been a lot of people aren't exposed to it. And they're going to find out the hard way that if you're not exposed to things, the right things that can cause a detrimental effect on your portfolio going forward. And and. So, you're, but back to the question is, are you seeing like an 80-20 split with a, with with an operating business investment in a, in a portfolio versus real estate or is it more 50-50? Oh, dude, I'm seeing more like uh, like 99 to zero. People aren't even exposed to it at all. Okay, so you're just saying everyone's either in the stock market or in real estate and not not in this sort of you know uh, QSR type of uh, balanced portfolio. Straight up, it's accessibility is the issue, right? And the funny thing is, at least for my investors, uh, because when I tell them, hey, this, you know, you talk, right? With all at least your favorite investors, you talk, what's going on? And I tell them, hey, this is what I'm doing. Every single one of them have told me, here you go, man. Here's just let me know when you want me to sign, where you want me to sign. Because this is, I, because once you tell somebody, they immediately put two and two together. Right. There's no like going back after that. You can't unsee it. Well, then, but let's talk about then inflation then. And how is a business in hedging against inflation versus, a physical asset. We all know, and we talk about it on the on the show, physical assets are hedged against inflation. That's why people are investing a lot into commercial real estate because we get to depreciate things. But when you're an operating business, there's and you don't owe the underlying dirt. No, no, pricing is the biggest driver you have. So, for instance, this health food chain that I was talking to you about. This literally, if you you are going to laugh when you get introduced to the brand. You know, you come in and you know they do the whole welcome day orientation. 
they have demographics and the demographics clearly are, and people laugh at this when I tell them, $110,000 plus median income, college educated, soccer moms. That's it. There's no other demographic. Because the reason there is that if, you, if you're on average making 110,000, again, because this is very different than the Taco Bell demographics, yep. right? Or the McDonald's demographic, where it's just a race to the bottom, right? 99 cents, 40 cents, two cents, zero cents, right? This is basically, you have purchasing, you have pricing power. So for instance, if a soccer mom that has 110,000 college educated soccer mom that has $110,000 median household income, if they're buying something for me for $7.50 and inflation goes up by 10% and let's do my pass it all onto the consumer, it doesn't hurt them as much mm. because they have enough pricing power. So even within private businesses, you have to realize which segment of the private businesses you're in, right? If you're in say the price competition where everything's made in China, and it's a price to the bottom, it's, inflation is going to destroy because you have inflation pressure, pricing pressure, competition pressure, you're going to kill. So com very commodity-heavy businesses, they don't tend to do very well in these certain, certain, certain uh, situations, basically. But when you've got niche products where you have pricing power as a producer, that's where you can really crank the screws, basically. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value add deals, then head over to readgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up and coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to readgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. But I would assume that you'd have to also have scale, right? Because you can't, the risk of having one or two, you know, stores yeah. is that you, you need to build a brand around it because, you know. Oh, yeah. So in this case, it is a franchise that has 140 plus stores. Got it. So the per so it's like, say, Think about it this way. You know how Walgreens, when Walgreens orders drugs from manufacturers, it's not like the Walgreens in around the corner from wherever you live. It independently orders drugs and the Walgreens where I live independent. No, no, no. They combine all their purchasing power at the top at Walgreens holding company. And then they go to say a drug manufacturer and say, look, we're going to give you $80 million this month. Give me a 20% discount. Right. Right. So you're right. You need scale. And that's why when we were looking at these concepts, we didn't want to go to a brand that was very small, like say less than 50 units. But we also didn't want to go to a brand that was over 500 units, because when you get into that range, you're either in a price competition because now they have to cater to everyone or the, the price of entry is so high that it's just stupid. So I'll give you an example with this one. Our price of entry is roughly about $350,000 per store. And Per store, like yep. because we're not owning the real estate, right? It's just this is basically three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand. Is I give you Reed Goosen's three hundred fifty to four hundred grand, and you give me the keys to a store that's up and running and ready to accept the first uh, customer, right? Now in this model, these because this is a newer set of models. Your average unit volume, which is say your gross potential rent in real estate terms, that is at least a million point five, one point two to one point five million dollars. So think about it this way. At the low end of $1.2 million, you divided by 400,000. So it's a three multiplier on your investment. Just per on the year. Per year, per year. Yeah, 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 per year, right? 
In a McDonald's, what happens is you are out of pocket a million and a half to $2 million up front because it's a standalone location and you got to do all the bells and whistles. And your first year revenues on average are like 1.75 to 2 million. So your ratio is very skewed because again, why? Because your fixed costs are so high, right? McDonald's is standalone. You got to have the big sign. You got to go do this. Those types of businesses are not nimble. And that's why a lot of those businesses get killed. I would argue yeah. that McDonald's, you're buying also the brand. So there's a brand element to it as well. Yeah, yeah. look, hold on. You are, that is, but you have to look at it over a long-term scale. My point is your payback, your investment payback yes. for a McDonald's is more like a five, 10 year play. Correct, correct. Yep. But, but again, the deal there is that you're, that's something that is your primary line of business. Yep. Like if you're a McDonald's operator, you're not doing McDonald's operations and kind of moonlight trying to wholesale houses, <laughs> you know, other things, right. right? But when you've got a 350, 400 grand unit, what you do is you build out five of these for every one McDonald's and you make it up basically on margin and volume, basically. Got it. What, what, but who's then running that $350,000 store? Because I don't want to run it. I, I've, got, no, I've, no, I've, got no, I've got a real estate business. <laughs> no, no, no. So this is why I told you, right? Uh, when I partnered with Thaddeus, the big thing was I told him I was straight up because initially we were looking at some uh, Wingstop, which is the chicken mm-hmm. brand. I don't. They yep. have it in California, yep, right? Yep, they do, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another great brand, by the way. They're going through a bit of an issue, but it's a great brand. I told him, look, man, if you open a Wingstop, I'm not going to like fry the chicken wings myself because <laughs> you really don't want me doing that. So this is why having a good operating partner is very, was very critical for me in this whole piece. It took me about a year and a half to do this because I went to Thaddeus. He knows all the people in the industry. We picked up this great operator that actually worked underneath him. He was his director of operations. And his deal was like a lot of guys who are in these niche industries is that they've made a lot of other people money, but they never got an equity share in the business. Mm. And a lot of the smart operators in all businesses, by the way, they realize eventually hey, if I don't get equity in this business, I'm just another guy. Right. And I'm going to retire at 60 and that's it. Mm-hmm. So with him, basically, I interviewed a few people and my whole deal from day one was, look, you've got to be at least 45, 50. So in my mind, the idea was you've probably been burnt by a few people before, <laughs> right? Because people make these lofty promises and never follow up, right? And because you've been burned before, you actually, and you also see in the next 15, 15-ish years, 10, 15 years, you're going to retire. So you're in that sweet spot where you've got the right amount of experience, you've been burned before, and now you actually understand the power of having equity in a business and helping it grow. Yep. So I, that's why it took me one and a half years to find the right operator. We've got Greg McPhail out in Palm Coast, Florida, and he's 25 years into the business, knows pretty much every single person. It's really funny. I'm on these calls now. And some CBRE broker will be like, hey, Greg, haven't talked to you in three years. How are you doing? You still doing Taco Bell? No, man, I'm in clean eats. Right? So <laughs> those connections you can't really buy. Right, right, right. right. It's just one of those things you, you just have to pay your dues. So pivoting away from just this conversation for a second, looking more into the future of what you think in inflation is going, yeah. what, these are all good strategies in real estate investing, investing in QSRs, understanding where to invest in, in, in your non-fixed cost versus variable, fi- variable costs uh, in businesses. But what's your crystal ball saying to you right now, Omar, coming into the next two, three years for, from an inflation and interest rate point of view? I can tell you this. I don't think in the next, say, one and a half, two years, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to materially improve. Let's put it that way. 
material improve in from an inflationary point of view? Yeah, from both either an inflationary point of view, but primarily an inflationary point of view, number one, mm-hmm. but also from a point of view of, say, stuff like supply chain issues. Right. Yep. Right. It's not going to improve because the issue is a lot of people have realized when they hold bought into this whole just-in-time manufacturing sort of deal, yeah, it's really good if your system is working super efficiently, but one small kink in your system just destroys everything. So now you see a lot of people are moving their factories from, say, China to Mexico. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. But that doesn't happen overnight. Right. It takes right? time. Because even, even if you have all the money in the world, you don't have a warehouse. You don't have a trained workforce. Right. So we're seeing all of these things. And for these things to happen and materialize, it's going to take like a couple of years. Yep. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. And I mean, look, the simplest example is we're looking for a car right now, right? Mm-hmm. Because my parents are going to come. I got two kids. We got to look for a bigger car. Dude, I cannot pay people right now money to give me a car. Like, I'm not saying give me the car at list price. I cannot pay ten to $20,000 over the list price and get a car right now. Yeah. The That's first, how crazy. First time in history where cars are appreciating. <laughs> the average yeah. car. Yeah, the average car. The average I mean, car. and not only appreciating, you can't even find it. Right. That's right. If you wanted to, you can't. So in the next couple of years, these things aren't going to improve. So what you have to do is position yourself in a way that you take advantage from some of these distortions. Got it. Got it. As we pivot now into the, the, the tax talk, your tax talk, right? Let's we talk about inflation. So everyone's worried about inflation. So they're trying to hedge uh, their investments and their money that they have into inflationary hedge investments like physical assets. What else are you seeing in terms of you know how you're going to pay like next to zero taxes by investing in? a physical asset like real estate or an operating business like a QSR? So look, the first thing you've got to start is, and I mean, you know this, You like, hopefully you're not paying any taxes, Reed. Come on. Very low one of those, here in California. You're one of those rich fat cats. <laughs> Come on, you don't pay any of those taxes. Look, a lot of people, a lot of real estate people get it, but I've seen a lot of people outside of real estate don't really get it. A lot of times, you know, you could be, say, making, say, let's assume a million dollars a year, right? And your mom, let's assume your average tax rate is, say, we're going to keep it simple, 40%, right? Mm-hmm. So this means make a million, you pay 40, your take home is 600 grand, right? Now, a lot of people assume when they're doing their budget, they just start at $600,000, right? They don't assume that they can do anything about their tax position, right? Because, hey, I don't even see the money. So what can I do? Well, the thing is you can do something about it because when you tilt and position your, and again, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little while, right? When you tilt and position your investments, towards tax efficiency, right? For instance, when you're doing real estate, you get all these depreciation write-offs. Now you could say I'm a passive investor. How do I take it against my active income? Well, a lot of times what people have done is a couple of my investors have done this, where say one of the partners was making significantly more money and the other partner wasn't making enough. And in this case, they had a couple of kids, right? So the one partner can decide to stay at home This other partner who's making more money, instead of say investing more in the stock market, started heavily investing in real estate, the benefits of those tax write-offs now, because the partner that's staying at home also now is doing some stuff to qualify as a real estate professional, right? So now all those tax write-offs can be taken against active income to actually help people out. So like I said, it doesn't happen overnight, but when you start focusing on tax efficiency, what you start realizing is that you can do something about your tax position. So think about it. No job, at least to my knowledge, is going to give you a 30 to 40% increase in your paycheck every year, year on year, for the rest of your life. It's just not going to happen. Okay, that doesn't exist, right? But if you manage your taxes properly, and let's assume you take your 40% in taxes, 
to 20% in taxes over, say, a five-year period. Well, that's 20% you get to keep in your pocket, that's 200 grand in this case, for the rest of your life. Think about it. If you had an extra 200 grand a year, or you have your tax bill, let's assume you pay 100 grand in taxes. You have it. You pay 50,000, you keep $50,000 a year. That pays for extra mortgages. That pays for private school education for your kids. That pays for vacations. That pays for savings. I mean, Jesus Christ, man, it pays for pretty much every single thing you are stressed out about. Oh, that's right. Yep. Right. So if you're not tax efficient, and by the way, it's not just in real estate, oil and gas leases, you can get a lot of write-offs, even 100% in some cases. Right. So you have to start focusing on tax efficiency because if you don't focus on tax efficiency, it is leaving money on the table, essentially. Yep, no, that's right. And All it, the time, every single day. When you're living in a, in a state like California, it has higher tax rate. So trying to offset that tax efficiencies is, is so important. What other things? You mentioned oil and gas leases. Yeah. Have you heard of um, the, the conservation easement stuff? Yes, but it's, the IRS keeps cracking down on it, man. So I'm really, that's what hesitant. I've heard of. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard I, the same I've thing. I've always been a little hesitant about it. That's right. That's right. No, but you, you're completely correct. The, the, the way in which both of us as syndicators, we, you know, we position it to our investors is you have to be more tax efficient with your income, right? You, the reason you invest passively in our deals is so you can benefit in being involved in a physical asset. And I'm, I don't know what you're seeing, but I'm seeing a lot more people focusing on the tax efficiencies these days coming into this inflationary environment rather than the cash flow. Because historically, multifamily has been fantastic for cash flow, but with inflation, prices are skyrocketed. You know, rents are still having to catch up. Cash flow coming out of the gates, you know, plus you know is a lot lower. Plus, compressing cap rates. Um, so, I think having a good, balanced, diversified portfolio, like supplementing it with a say QSR, is really, really important. So you get the benefits of both worlds: the tax efficiencies in the physical assets and the cash flow from an operating business. And you also yeah. get you also get cash flow and from, look, from multiple. To your well. point, again, there is no one pill. There is no one magic pill. Like you do this, and all your problems are solved. A lot of this is basically having the awareness to realize that there are solutions to problems, but if you don't even consider something to be a problem or don't acknowledge it's a problem, how can you go solve it? Right. Right. So if you never, if you never even acknowledge your taxes as an expense, because if, if you think about it, it is an expense. I mean, you made money and you don't got it. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's an expense. If you don't take that first step and realize it's outflows, hey, just do this in your head. I make this gross income. What are all the outflows leaving me? Doesn't matter what it's called. Just realize what the, what are the outflows. Once you recognize that problem, you can then go solve it, basically. Yep. Or get on the path towards solving. Completely it. agree. And there's also other ways of doing tax efficiency in other physical assets like commodities, yeah, cryptocurrency to some extent. But you know, there's volatility in that. Uh, but you have to also understand what's the best use of your money. So, you know, commodities doesn't- And time you- also, by the way, because a lot of times you can do things, but they might be very time intensive. And time, and time. That's right. That's right. So so one like a, like gold might have really good hedge against inflation. It's also good uh, for tax benefits, but it's may not it's not going to produce any cash flow, right? Physical real estate has the benefits of all of that. You know, operating business may not have as much tax efficiencies because it's not physical, it's just not operating a business. So having your 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 prongs in the fire for a diversified portfolio is really really important. And all of these things are outside you know um, the the conventional investing in the stock market. So there's a lot of a lot of places for people to place their money, and it's just about being educated. And to your point, unless you acknowledge that something's an issue like taxes or like cash flow, 
and you don't focus on it, then it's all, you know, you're never going to be able to fix it. So let's pivot to the, the sort of the final thing we're talking about in the green room before coming on this show. And that's, you know, how capital raises are treating high net worth individuals as like walking ATMs. Do you want to give yeah. me your two cents on that? Yeah, look, it's funny that, again, you're, you're a sponsor as well, so you probably know a lot of this thing, that a lot of times what happens is you have a conversation uh, with somebody who's obviously either new or like a little green, and then they say, well, this guy's giving me a 30% IRR. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'm in the market. I've probably seen this deal, because if you're in the market, you see, look, for instance, you're in, you're in Central Texas, you've seen all the deals in Central Texas that are being out there, public on or off market, right? You're like, look, man. And nothing's really off market these days. Yeah, right, nothing is, you know this, right? Everybody will say, oh, this exclusive off market opportunity or proprietary model or this. <laughs> There's, there are no secrets, guys. Everybody knows how to do this, right? The real secret is in relationships, but even then, a broker isn't gonna give you a deal if you're $5 million less, just because you've got a nice face. Right. I mean, <laughs> hey, look, it's just hey, sometimes faces can do that, right? <laughs> hey, Reed, it doesn't happen with you. Though, so. <laughs> <laughs> look, so the thing is, a lot of times we talk to people, both of us talk to people, right? We run similar businesses. We talk to people and they say, oh, this is this person is doing this. Because the issue you've got to realize is if you talk to five people and four people say, say, let's assume it's a 13 to 15% return, right? And one guy says it's 25%. Right. Well, the problem is the guy is treating you like a walking, talking ATM because he's going to get you hot and bothered. You think the number on the paper is some sort of either a guarantee or he's going to get it or some version of that. And we both know that's not true, number one. Right. Because above market returns, they're only possible up to a certain level. I mean, it's not like you go from 15% to 300%. That doesn't work, number one. Number two, what's been happening is with the proliferation of all these capital raisers, because they're not operators, a lot of them. They're trying to do a mid, in my opinion, they're trying to do a career pivot. So if somebody was making, say, and again, this is not looking down on somebody, somebody's making $40,000 a year or 50 or $60,000 a year, and they're trying to pivot, well, the issue becomes, are you the sacrificial lamb on which they're going to go pivot their career on, right? So you've got to be aware of these things because I have so many investors, I know we toss to people, People say outlandish things with nothing backing it up. As a, and as an investor, especially if you're a newer investor, you will just assume some guy on YouTube, some guy on Facebook or LinkedIn, well, if he's there, he must be saying it. I mean, it must be true. But it's not really true. But And by the time you find out it's not really true, the person has your money, it's two years down the line, and now you've, they're not gone anywhere. So, so, so what, do you, what do you say? So what I say is, first of all, talk to a diversity of people, Right. And always realize, like it's like what the banks do with their interest, or when they did it, when they were fixing interest rates. At least they would chop off the top coat and chop off the bottom coat, and then they would take the average of the middle, right? Come somewhere in the middle and use that as their baseline. So don't talk to one person, no matter how reputable that person is. Talk to at least five or six people. Okay, now no, don't talk to twenty because then you'll be confused all the time, right? It's find a middle ground. Chop off the top end of the estimate, chop off the middle and bottom end of the estimate. Take the middle and then use that to realize if somebody's blowing smoke up your butt or not. Right, right. And it's also understanding the risk-adjusted returns. Investing in a tertiary market versus investing in a growth market, you're going to have different cap rates. You're going to have different cash flows. Understanding how the metrics on the financing side work and what levers people are pulling in order to try and juice the IRRs through refinancing or over leverage or mezz mezzanine debt slash equity. All these things 
can hurt and add all risk to the deals. So understanding that and comparing it a few against a few different operators in some different asset classes also is really, really important, i.e. multifamily versus self-storage or multifamily versus mobile home exactly. parks or versus office space or retail. Like where do you think the long-term future is best for your your money You know, to preserve it and to grow it over, over a long period of time? So I completely agree with all of that. So before we dive into the lightning round, what are your, what are your part thoughts for the average investor listening here today who is you know looking at deals that you've just blown them with a lot of information from taxations to hedging your inflationary hedges to QSRs to um, talking about being viewed as a walking ATM what's the biggest piece of advice for the for the passive investor out there today look the biggest piece of advice that I would give to people is a lot of people get really fixated on the deal right? Oh, this deal says 20%, this deal says 18%. Look, in reality, the difference between an 18 and 19% IRR is like a few dollars, maybe. It's not even enough dollars for you to buy a burger, okay? But what you really have to figure out, and this is what I do when I'm investing with other people, is my I have two criteria. The, the number one criteria is, well, they're actually together. Is this person competent? And does this person, in my opinion, have share a similar a set of ethics, right? Because what you don't want to be with somebody who's very ethical, but a complete idiot, right? Because that doesn't really help you, right? But conversely, you don't want to be with somebody who's extremely competent, world-class, but is a Bernie Madoff, the next Bernie Madoff, because that doesn't help you, right? So a lot of times we get so used to making these quantitative judgments on an Excel sheet, 18, 19, one, two, right? A lot of this still boils down to qualitative analysis, like talk to somebody multiple times. If anybody's trying to pressurize you to invest the first time you talk to them, take a step back, take two or three or four days, don't talk to that person, come back, see if it's a good deal or not, right? right? But a lot of this is qualitative analysis because what you're trying to judge is somebody's character, which again, is very hard to do because if it was easy to do, everybody would do it. That's what you're really trying to understand. And once you have comfort around that, once you understand that, don't even worry about the deal because if you're dealing with ethical, right people who are competent, the deal will work out. Yep. Okay. And no amount of good deal is worth dealing with people whose ethics are either shaky or they're incompetent. Yep. I completely agree. And it ultimately goes back to that the person will invest in you as the operator first and foremost before the deal. And that's it's important to understand who you're getting into bed with and, and who's who you're trusting your money with, right? Who's a steward of that capital over the next four, five, six years. So absolutely love that stuff. Mate, at the end of every show, we love to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's go. Let's go. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Oh, so the daily habit is basically I'm very calendar driven. So I, for me, as long as I'm calendar driven, a lot of things happen. Also, the other thing is I, I've now realized, I realized it for a few years. If I basically write down like three or four, like two major things I have to do today, mm-hmm. right? And there's because there's always a hundred things, right? I write down the two major things I have to do today and I can do them, everything else happens. That's a win. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Love it. Question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Look, obviously, I, the usual answer is your parents, right? For most people, it's their parents, right? Because education, a lot of this starts at home. So I would say my parents. But also along the way, I, I wouldn't say there's one person, but there's a lot of composite of people who at various stages, they even said, I mean, it's even down to the point where somebody said a kind word at the right time, mm. right? 
And that helped me get through a certain barrier. So there's lots of people. Look, I've had great mentors at professionally when I was working in institutions. Keith was a senior of mine. Kent was a senior of mine by Boss Leo. You know, now I have so many entrepreneurs. I talk to you. I talk to Jonathan Twombly. I talk to so many other people. So there's lots and lots of people who at various times have either influenced me or said a kind word, which helped me get to the next level. Yep. Love it. Love it. Question number three is what's been the most influential tool in your business that you can't run the daily operations without? It could be a physical tool like a phone or a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run that business without. What is it? I think it's like the G Suite uh, set of like whatever, Google Docs plus the G Suite thing, yeah. like calendar, email, and that entire thing, basically. Right. But if I had to pick one, it would be the calendar. Yep. Yep. I, I do run all my business on G Drive. And it's funny how back in the day, work when you, I remember you used to working for a small company that actually have a physical drive in the office that oh, they'll, sa- they'll save That's everything big. on. Uh, yeah, so it was, it's good to come to some, to the cloud-based system where everyone can access it. Um, and you know, especially when we're traveling, we can just whip out our phone, but you yep. see something. Exactly. Exactly. Question number four is in one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Not focusing on marketing enough. I don't know if that's a sentence. That's a sentence fragment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, look, this is just my opinion. I think a lot of college educated people, especially in STEM fields or mathematical fields or maybe fields like finance, we by the time we're done with college, we end up thinking that, hey, I just have to be really good at my job or whatever I do. And that's that's good enough, right? That's not really the case life works because in life, a lot of times it's not the person who is the most competent, it's the person who's probably the most well-known, at least on the face of it, who gets success quickly. Mm-hmm. So learning that there is technical competence, but a good part of now me growing up as a person is the ability to present and tell my story in the right way and be a good advocate for that story. And that is something that doesn't come naturally to me, but it's something that I have to learn. No, here, here, and I'm completely the same as you. I'm a mathematical brain, structural engineer. I had to learn about podcasting and advertising yourself and telling your story. So I love that that lesson. Last question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? So you can reach out to me, Omar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com. You can also uh, go to our homepage. There's an email option right on the right side of the page, scroll down, name, email, how you find out about us, click the button, it'll give you access, click on the link to verify yourself. And if you write in your email, when you email us, uh, hey, if you wanna be added to my mobile app, what we can do is just email me, We will. I will have my marketing guy, Sean, add you to our mobile app, we have exclusive video content, all of this is free. For our uh, subscribers, they can get all of this stuff for free, basically, they don't gotta go look around. That's awesome, mate. Well, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think I really love the way your energy that you bring to explaining something, you know, somewhat complex, you know, like inflation and hedging your bets against inflation to the audience. I think breaking that down into what you need to do to get from point A to point B. I love your analogy about diversification and not analogy, but what you're now doing to add different prongs to the fire, you know, cogs to the to the machine in order to supplement and be in other businesses to help diversify uh, your your portfolio moving forward. And, and lastly, how to you know, advise the passive investor on what they need to go out and do in order to look for a good sponsor. You know, obviously talk to a lot of people, but understand to invest in integrity first and foremost, and the deal actually comes second. So did I leave anything out? No, I think you covered everything. It's your show. You're the boss. (laughs) Well, mate, I thank you so much again for jumping on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Well, there you have another cracking episode jam pack with some incredible advice from Omar. If you're really keen to go and check him out, you can just Google his name, O-M-A-R-K-H-A-N, Omar Khan, at Boardwalk Wealth, boardwalkwealth.com, all one word. Check him out over there, doing some great stuff in the multifamily space, but also in the QSR space. So really, really intelligent guy who's got a lot of awesome things to say. I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. We're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.